Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Hello all, and welcome to this episode of Finnerin's Wake. I'm your humble host, Daniel Finnerin, and I'm honored that you've decided to join me today. At the beginning of each month, I make a pilgrimage to my local public library, through whose vast assortment of books, magazines, journals, and CDs, I spend a peaceful, leisurely, unpremeditated afternoon browsing. I admit, each time that I embark upon this monthly adventure, I know not the destination toward which I'm drifting. I simply resign myself to the currents of curiosity and the winds of fancy by which, no matter the direction of their gust, I happily allow my literary sails to be filled. Often, the finest treasures that one might hope to find are dug up and procured in just this very way. That's precisely how I stumbled upon Carrie Gibson's great work, El Norte, the epic and forgotten story of Hispanic North America. For its discovery, I have serendipity to thank. After marking and scribbling on multiple pages as though they were my own, I decided I mustn't further blemish a book of which I was merely a renter. I purchased it, and now urge you to do the same. I reached out to Carrie to join me on this channel, to which she graciously agreed. What follows is our conversation about uh, so many things. The British Empire, Columbus, Cortez, Magellan, the settlement of America, Manifest Destiny and Karl Marx, and much, much more. I think you'll find it both stimulating and enlightening. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to this very special episode of Finnerin's Wake. I am joined today by the renowned author and journalist, Miss Carrie Gibson, um, of whom I feel I'm undeserving to, or with whom I feel I'm undeserving to have a conversation, but I have to extend her my thanks and my gratitude for joining me today. So Miss Gibson, how are you today? Hi, nice to be here. Oh, it's an honor and a privilege to have you. So um, you are the author of two, what I believe to be fantastic and illustrative books, um, Empire's Crossroad, which was published in, I think, 2014, and El Norte, more recently published in, I think, 2019. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, that that's correct. Yeah, Empire's Perfect. Crossroads in 2014 and El Norte in 2019. Perfect. With the Spanish edition and, and El Norte just out this year. So excellent, excellent. <laughs> Which I've recommended to many of my Spanish-speaking friends down here in, in Southern Florida, I should say. Um, and those are two works to which I'll provide links in the show notes below so people can search them, hopefully, and uh, and purchase them on Amazon. Now, of course, those are two works into which I'm very excited to delve. But given the world historic event that occurred just a few days ago in Great Britain, 
I would be remiss, inexcusably remiss, were I to fail to ask you about your feelings about everything that has transpired over the past few days. So maybe you can give some general remarks about um, Queen Elizabeth as a person, um, and maybe the son by whom she's now been succeeded, and perhaps the monarchy as an institution more generally. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I've been living in Britain. I grew up in the US, but I've been living in Britain since 99, so quite a while. And uh, I think that um, it's always um, it's quite interesting to be an American uh, living here and thinking about the monarchy and what that represents. Um, it has been a very interesting week, um, no question. My takeaway from it at the moment is that the, the, the monarchy is in very good health, um, slightly better health, I think, than people realized. Um, the public outpouring has been not necessarily surprising. Um, you know, Queen, Queen Elizabeth II was very much um, a figure of continuity. Um, she bridged generations. She was very consistent in her behavior. Um, Charles, it was a bit, bit more complicated, um, obviously. But at the moment, public approval for him is fairly high. I mean, it's early days. Um, and, and, you know, in the, in the, the, the transference um, has been very interesting to watch as a historian um, to see these kind of um, ceremonies resurrected. But in the longer term and kind of in the bigger picture, um, there are some things going on uh, that, are, that are very interesting. One of them, of course, is, is in the Caribbean. Um, a lot of Caribbean countries are really rethinking their place in, in the Commonwealth. So we had Barbados uh, recently getting rid of the Queen as the head of state. Um, I think Jamaica's going to, I know Antigua's going to vote soon. Jamaica's discussing it. Mm. So, you know, that's going to be something for Charles to really have to deal with. You know, the Queen is seen as an imperial symbol. And, you know, 70 years ago, um, the empire was a very different thing to it to what it is now and and you know you know on alongside of the kind of public sort of displays of, of affection and grief there's also a very rigorous debate about about monarchy and empire um going on as well and i think that's important to recognize and important to listen to um so they're definitely going to have some issues on their hands in terms of the caribbean uh, republics in their place uh, with the monarchy. Um, within Britain, um, I think for the moment it's it's pretty solid. But um, you know, as the days go on, we kind of find out more. You know, there's there's parts of of say Charles's estate which will now go the Duchy of Cornwall, which will now go to his son um, Prince William. Well, no longer Prince William, who we did. Cornwall, um, that they're not taxed on that income, for instance. You know, there's certain things, there's certain prerogatives and privileges that the royal family has that mm, maybe aren't going to sit very well in a country that's having a, a massive economic crisis. For instance, you know, at the moment, it's very early days and everybody's, you know, there's, like I said, there's, there's a very, very public um, outpouring. And in fact, the Queen's uh, coffin is on her way to London as we speak from Scotland mm -hmm. today. And, you know, the, the, the expectation is that people will be queuing day and night until the memorial service next week. So, so it's a very interesting time time to be here. I did not work on British political history, so to watch some of this has been very fascinating for me, um, just in terms of of understanding uh, the connections to the, that deeper 
past and and even like the places like Westminster Hall or Balmoral or all these other places like how they how they link to this bigger history within within Britain so yeah Oh, but I think you are uniquely qualified to comment on these. <laughs> so I didn't realize that you are, a, what would you say, a, an Americo-Anglican or an Anglo-American? <laughs> I think Anglo-American probably. Which do you prefer? So I, <laughs> um, I, I think I prefer citizen of the world. Ah, uh, uh, yes. In, in terms of my... <laughs> You're like Diogenes. You're a modern Diogenes. <laughs> uh, excellent. Hopefully less um, cynical, though. So, so I Less cynical? <laughs> less cynical than Diogenes. As a cosmopolitan, but um, so so I'm, I have to ask, where in America were you born and raised? Well, I grew up in um, so I was born in Ohio, and I grew up in the Deep South. And uh -huh. and as we talk about my books, I think I suspect you'll understand the connection about how these things got in, uh, sort of my interests got formed. But um, so I grew up in the Deep South, and I went to the University of Georgia as for my first degree, um, and I went to high school in Dalton, Georgia. And I spent some of my childhood in Tennessee. So yeah. Wow. Um, so I can I yeah, my my British friends are always sort of saying to me, Oh, please talk in a southern accent. I mean, unfortunately <laughs> I don't have a Floridian accent. I was born and raised in New Jersey. But uh we could do a little Flor Florida Georgia line had we had yeah. we known in, in advance, we could have prepared for that. <laughs> well, I think that's Oh yeah, there's definitely there's definitely an accent in Valdosta and Jacksonville, like that that bit. Oh yes, Georgia yes. And Florida, that is that's yes, definitely south. Very, very distinctive, very distinctive. Um, but I, I think that's fascinating. I think that makes more sense why you were drawn to this part of uh, world history, American history, yes, but it's it's British history, it's world history, it's European history more generally. Um, mm. So that's it's it's interesting to know your your feelings about the monarchy. Um, I I find that there's some ambivalence about the the institution here in America. Um, mm. You know, of course, we feel ourselves. Uh, I don't know, natively ill disposed toward toward the institution. Um, but I think in in regarding it that way, we often overlook just how important it was and is, perhaps maybe in a, in a lesser extent now, but as a as a world institution. Um, so I wanted to ask you on that point, you know, in the Anglosphere, we we tend to suffer these, uh, I don't know, paroxysms of uneasiness about our imperial past. Um, do you do you think those are well founded? And maybe to be more specific, do you see the institution of the monarchy and the empire having been a net benefit or detriment on the world as it is today? I mean, that it, that's a. I mean, in some ways, it's an easy question because I would just say detriment. You know, this is this is an institution that brought in you know slavery. Um, it took land from people. There was a carve up of Africa in the nineteenth century that you know when we talk about it today is ludicrous when we discuss it. Um, uh, you know, but. On the other hand, it's kind of like, well, I can't do anything about that. So how do we assess what those encounters left, right? So mm -hmm. it, it is part of what formed the world for better or worse. You know, I mean, war is also a bad idea, quite ludicrous most of the time too. But, you know, we are all products in some way or another of conflicts. You know, our lives or our family's lives are formed by that. And the same with empire. Um, 
But what's interesting is while we still have wars, I think the nature of empire has changed a lot. It's no longer a, a monarch figurehead, is it? It's, it's much more imper informal empire, which the US has, you know, kind of been the, the number one app for yeah. quite a while, you know, soft power, uh, you know, covert operations, all that sort of thing, instead of, you know, um, uh, a royal- cult cultural, uh, cultural as well. Absolutely, like hegemonic, absolutely. Hegemonic in that regard, in, in the cultural influence. So it, you're right. And not to say that the British Empire wasn't also culturally very impressive as well. And, and, and any empire, the French Empire, of course, we can talk about any European empire specifically. Um, but it's interesting now because we're seeing, you're right, you're absolutely right, different types of imperial ambitions. Uh, just looking to the East, for example, you know, the, everyone's talking about China, and there's good reason. You have the Silk and Road Initiative. We have all these different. I mean, you talk about Africa as well. Uh, you know, the purchase of real of, of vast swaths of of land in in Africa by the by the Chinese government, which is, you know, imperial in a very different way, right? It's you know, building infrastructure, but perhaps indebting a lot of nations uh, to a certain political agenda. That's that's somewhat distressing i would say to to modern sentiments so it's an interesting way in which you're absolutely right you know the imperial past leads to an imperial future we like to think that you know empire is this this vestigial part of our you know ever progressing humanity but perhaps it's just uh, inborn perhaps in states and governments and polities who who knows your thoughts about but the, that the, i mean you're right there's there is an impetus um to, I mean, also, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's about it's about controlling resources. It's about controlling labor. Um, in some ways, you know, it is still very kind of fundamental um, human impulses, right? You know, to to get all the gold, right? To get all mm. the cobalt, to control all the people. But you know, to use the to use the saying, when you know better, you do better. It's it's quite shocking when we still see it today. I think because at some level, our sensibilities now go, no, this isn't actually right. You know, actually, mm, not 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 so sure. We, you know, China should be doing this, or Britain should be doing that, or the U.S. should be doing this. I do think that, but you know, again, I mean, and this is you know a group who's been very kind of written out of history. But th there there were always anti-imperialists. Um, you know, like if you look sort of around the time uh, of the Spanish-American War, there were people who were very critical of the U.S. going mm. into this, and they thought it was a kind of neo, you know, or an early kind of imperialist thing. There were definitely critics of the British Empire, um, but they were sidelined and they were marginalized. And um, and so there's always been critics of imperialism, and uh, and 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 like I say, you know, for, for for empires like Britain and Spain, who are who basically aren't really empires anymore, it's, it's it's even easier to criticize them now because you're right. I mean, there's other people in the ascendancy, and certainly China's one of them, and and um, but I think that one of the things that really affects or, or is important in the discussion that we have in assessing European empires is how the language of race developed underneath that. And because we're all living with that in the West, we it is a legacy of empire that we have this this invented category of race. And the question is, how do we deal with that now? What will China leave? You know, as because I still think China's got a, a long way to go in its kind of in, in, in what it's trying to do. I don't know enough about China to comment any more than that, but um, but certainly in assessing, you know, the 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 impact of of um, European colonialism, you know, we have a lot to unpick and we have a lot to question and to criticize um, for sure. So.
Uh, and I guess that's that's the job of the historian as well. So. Yes, and you have much work, <laughs> much work before you. Uh, no, and I know this isn't um, your specific field of study, and I appreciate you um, indulging me and expanding beyond <laughs> those boundaries. But you know, there are just so many interesting um, things happening right now that that uh, you know I felt. I felt it necessary to pick your brain. Perhaps we should have done that at the end of the. Uh, who knows? But, but um, I was I was too eager. I think to 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 know what you thought about that. So let let's turn now. Just briefly, I want to ask uh, something about British historians generally. Now, I perhaps as an English speaker, I have a a, a great love and adoration for British historians. Edward Gibbon, um, even David Hume. Um, Neil Ferguson today is is doing excellent work, and um, one one author by whom I was greatly influenced, who works in a similar field as you, uh, Felipe Fernandez Armesto. I don't know if you're mm -hmm. familiar with his work or you studied with him in your uh, you know educational upbringing, but but I think his work is fantastic. So um, perhaps this is a, a question intended to flatter. Uh, I don't know exactly, <laughs> but is there some native genius in the uh, British? <laughs> approach to history because again um the, they seem the british historians seem to produce exquisite work yours included i think your work is absolutely fantastic el norte specifically um so can you speak to a little bit about that maybe uh, british historians generally and your influences as you know historical writers uh, more specifically um yeah, I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's necessarily a in innate thing, um, but I do think it's a systematic one, which is um, Oxford and Cambridge, um, and also kind of the uh, kind of the other elite universities here. But what happens in the British education system is very different to the US, and that involves the, um, the fact that at sixteen you pick three subjects. And then you do A levels at those three subjects. And then you go to university and you study that one subject for three to four years. Mm. So and I so I did my PhD at Cambridge. And the people who and I I worked as a journalist and I went back to do a PhD. So I was encountering people who had come up through the system. They had done A levels, undergraduate degree, masters, all in history. And they were like many experts. Whereas mm. I think, you know, if you come out of the US system, sure you major in something, but you know, when you go back to graduate work, you kind of have to not start at the beginning, but you kind of um, there's, So that's part of it, right? And, and it's a system that's very fostered uh, in the elite university. So in Oxford and Cambridge, you get one-to-one -one tuition. Um, so you have a tutor and you write them an essay every week and you have one-to-one -one with like quite famous historians um, or sometimes you get graduate students like me instead, but um, <laughs> and again, very different to the US style. Um, so, so you have that, but I think at the same time, you have a long tradition of writing popular histories. So Gibbon's a great example. Like I feel like he's maybe the first kind of modern bestseller, you know, when we think about like the practice of history and how people write in you know 1776 he's like kind of written this book that's a hit you know mm -hmm. and um and, and, uh, and still still is at least in my on my, on my bookshelf <laughs> all three volumes but yes go on <laughs> so so i definitely think there's that to tap into there's a there's a really nice tradition of um 
of writing for the public. So, you know, um, you mentioned a few, a few people, um, and yeah, Felipe Fernandez Amesto um, has reviewed me uh, very kindly. So, um, but we haven't really crossed paths. But um, but again, he's very much uh, an example of that. I think he was a don at Oxford for a long time. Is that because he's an Oxford man, and and, and you are a Cambridge woman? Perhaps, <laughs> Maybe the, the enduring rivalry yeah. between those exactly. two institutions. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, but um, and, and again, he yeah, he's very um, and and he's one of those people that crosses. Um, you know, he's able, he writes for an academic audience and a public audience very fluidly. There's a, there's a lot of that as well. Um, and some of the other historians who I really like and admire, like Linda Colley, who works on the British Empire, um, again, kind of works, she moves between those two worlds where her books are very readable, but also, you know, her scholarship is very scholarly. And in classics, obviously, you have Mary Beard, who, again, mm. you know, does that. Um, you also, though, have a tradition of people like myself who, who don't teach, who aren't in the system, and um, and and just write for the public. So I'm thinking of people like Hugh Thomas, who wrote um, weighty tomes about the slave trade, about Spain, about Cuba. Um, people like William Dalrymple, who work on India. I think his stuff is incredibly accessible and really, really, really readable. So yeah, I think it's it's partly systematic that by the time you're in your early twenties, if you come up through the British system, you're, you're fairly well primed to, to kind of you know be an expert. Um, but uh, you know, and and I think it's just also a, a, a reading public that that really enjoy it. I mean, I find it really interesting to read histories in, in Spanish. Um, and some of the biggest selling historians in, of Spain are actually British historians who are translated. So people like Paul Preston, who writes about the, the Spanish Civil War, they read him. And I think partly because it just depends, you know, every country is slightly different, but I've found that a lot of Span histories in Spanish are far more social science-y and less narrative. And so mm. they're a little drier to read, they're a little, you know. So yeah, you know, it, when you bring that British flair, it, it's kind of something very different for, for the audience. I mean, the US obviously has a number of very good popular history writers as well. But I, but I think, you know, um, certainly in the Anglosphere, uh, there's a culture that, that rewards it, that, you know, kind of encourages it. So yeah, I mean, Britain's a great place to be situated if you want to work on popular history. <laughs> Yeah, and that's not a topic into which I intended to delve. The the, the <laughs> a, a comparison or a contrast between the um, the way in which American students are brought up through the university and the way in which mm. British and European students are brought up through the a tracking system, more or less. I think uh, the quality of, as I noted, the British historians. Uh, speaks well to the to the tracking system whereas in america oftentimes <laughs> in your early 20s you're still deciding on your major and <laughs> taking on another two years uh, uh in in ex exceeding what you originally intended to to do um but no that's an excellent answer and and you gave um a plethora of, of exquisite writers some of whom with whom i'm familiar some not um so i look forward to going back and and uh, jotting down their names and and uh looking into their work but uh, again, I think you particularly um, have a, a, an excellent facility to be able to convey these interesting and difficult uh, topics in a very readable way. So again, I encourage anyone listening to this channel who's who maybe feels that yeah, history generally is a daunting prospect, and especially you know, early American history, you don't know where to begin. You think, you know, we think it begins with 1776 and uh, Independence Hall. There is so much beyond, beneath that that tree, right? There's a whole root system that is so expansive. So I think, Carrie, your work is 
especially well suited both for the scholar and for the more lay person like myself uh, who needs just a, a, a general but very digestible book into which he or she can sink uh, his or her teeth. Uh, so, so with that said, there's so many topics that we could now approach. Um, I want to begin though, I want to begin briefly with Christopher Columbus. So of course, in El Norte, that's a man of whom you make no mention, which, which is understandable. Of course, you're beginning from a very particular point in time. Um, but uh, kind of taking the fact that he's such a prominent figure in American history and in European history generally, um, what are your what are your remarks about Christopher Columbus? Of course, he's sort of become a lightning rod in some ways in, in America, especially amongst Italian Americans. Um, he's, <laughs> he's celebrated. He's celebrated quite um, almost um, well, very enthusiastically in the cities. You know, I, I live near Philadelphia, and you know, mm -hmm. Christopher Columbus was a very important figure among um, Italians in Philadelphia. But of course, he's come under renewed scrutiny and criticism um, as we've as we've. Um, come into a new age. So what are your general opinions of Christopher Columbus? Well, it's funny It's funny you mentioned it because there is a tiny bit about Columbus, I think tagged onto maybe the introduction of El Norte at, at, my, at my editor's behest. He's like, what about Columbus? And I'm like, oh God, do we have to start with Columbus? I've already written about him in, in Empire's Crossroads. And he's like, you got to start with Columbus. And I was like, okay, but I don't, you're right. I don't start, I don't open the book with Columbus. Um, I kind of I kind of push him in there because 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 you need that connect like okay you know how wait how did we why why is why is Juan Ponce de Leon running around wait wait so I had to I had to make that connection but I did it very briefly Columbus though is a really important figure for what he both did and what he symbolizes and so there's a lot about him I think people don't understand um, and that is that he is basically a renaissance like fixer. He is involved in all these communities and he brings them together. And then he unleashes something that's quite destructive. And this is why, like you said, this is why he comes under renewed criticism. And it's really funny because I'm also Italian American on my mother's side. So, um, you know, there is a bit of like, what's wrong with Columbus? And it's like, okay, <laughs> let me explain, you know, let me explain. But where it's really interesting is that, okay, Columbus is Genoese. So you have Genoa, Venice, and Florence, uh, city-states with a lot of money um, in the 15th century, looking for new mercantile opportunities, um, investing in exploration, throwing money behind expeditions um, along the coast of Africa, looking for gold, looking for trade, all sorts of things. Columbus is, is from that world. He is also um, obviously gets involved in navigation and ships, um, he marries a Portuguese uh, noblewoman whose father, I believe, was the mayor or like official in, I think, Porto Santo, which is a small island near Madeira. Now, Madeira became a Portuguese colony. It's, a, it's an Atlantic island um, about, oh, about a thousand kilometers off the coast. It's kind of in between here and in the U.S., basically, you know, if you're, if you're flying. And... Um, when the Portuguese bumped into Madeira, it was unoccupied and they turned it into a lumber colony and they eventually turned it into a sugar colony. And they got the labor from the Canary Islands, which are to the south and which were claimed by Spain. And um, the Canary Islands today are basically the Florida of Europe um, because they're off the coast of Africa. They have nice weather all year round and that's where we're being on holiday. Um, before that happened, though, um, 
you had the Spaniards and the Portuguese kind of fighting over it. You had the Spaniards showing up. And the, the difference with the, with the Canaries is that they were occupied by the Guanche people. And those people were enslaved because they weren't Christians. Uh, and so, okay, so Columbus is kind of in this world where people are enslaving people, people are making them work, people are experimenting with sugar. And then on top of that, the Portuguese have been going down to West Africa since 1434. So you get all these elements and, and there's some thought that Columbus spent some time in West Africa. He also spent time in the Greek island of today. It's a Greek island called Chios, which was a Genoese colony. So this is a man who is familiar with sailing, slaving, sugar production. I mean, you know, just about basically about every element that kind of takes root in the new world. He has had some experience of. And I think that's why he's such a crucial figure because he actually takes it across the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. So people are like, oh, Columbus is a really awful man for all the things he did. And it's like, right, but he was a man of his time. He took him, he didn't invent this. This stuff was happening. Right. And he took it somewhere. He thought he took it to Japan. I think the thing that I find really interesting about him is that he never said, he died saying, I went to the East. I made it to Japan. I, he I actually... never admitted. I actually uh, appreciate that obstinacy. <laughs> I wish I was that steadfast. Maybe I am. I wish I was that steadfast about something, <laughs> but or anything. <laughs> no, but um, you're you're absolutely right, and that's so well stated. Yeah, I think people fail to recognize that that uh, Columbus had a long history behind him. You know, he was in in. Right basically a kind of a merchant. He was doing a lot of different things, exploring the west coast of Africa. And you make a great point. We tend to neglect the fact, perhaps, I don't know, transatlantically, we just think, okay, there's America, all right, and there's England. <laughs> like, there's nothing in between. But of course, that couldn't be further from the truth. You have the Verde Islands, you have Madeira, you have the Canary Islands. And, and once these became outposts, I think a lot of things changed because I think it was on Columbus's first journey. You know, they stop at the Canary Islands first and foremost, mm -hmm. and they, you know, that was part of the route that you would take. And, um, you know, uh, and I actually have a, a friend who's who's from the Canary Islands, and it's a beautiful oh, place. Nice. I haven't visited, but it's a beautiful place. Um, so, uh, yeah, you're, uh, you're, 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 I think your appreciation of Columbus is, is infallible. I think it's perfect. Um, I, I mean, I'm not saying he's, I'm not saying, I'm not morally defending him. No, no, like, I, I know you're not. There's a case to be made, but I do think like he is a very important figure. Like he didn't pull this out. I think sometimes as well, like you say, because we neglect this kind of Atlantic history, it's kind of like, oh, this guy appears and then he mm. just shows up and starts enslaving people. And it's like, right, but there's this whole middle bit and there's this whole kind of 60 years of development of this kind of model that that is going on. And I think that's really, really important to kind of drive that that home to people, you know, I mean, not, you know, judge Columbus however you like, but, you know, he took this European model of colonialization and enslavement and he yeah, took it across I, the Atlantic. I think there's a little bit of a reductive tendency, uh, maybe towards simplicity in, in his and our history, uh, which mm. are of course entangled. Uh, inextricably, I, I think he's a little bit like the Big Bang, you know, the <laughs> creation of this world. Whereas you know, he is the most prominent figure of that of that process, but certainly not mm. the first. And of course, you know, the reason why they were seeking a, a Western route was because 
you know, it was more increasingly difficult to go through the East, and there are reasons for that. You can talk about, you know, the the rise and and spread of of Islam and and other mm -hmm. and other civilizations that were vying for trade routes and and things like that. So it became increasingly impracticable to to go East, which would have been, you know, saved them a little bit of time instead of <laughs> going around, you know, uh, Africa, right. as <laughs> as our later uh, explorers will do. So. Good. I, I know. I had. I couldn't go. I couldn't leave uh, Columbus untouched, <laughs> having, <laughs> having a prominent mind like yours in my presence. Uh, though I know it's probably for a historian of this era, uh, probably a little tedious to be to have to, <laughs> or to be asked to talk about him at at length. But you know, he he's such a such an integral figure that you know he must be mentioned at the very least. So with Columbus behind us, I mm. want to I want to pose to you a, a hypothetical. So, of all the explorers with whom you could sail in that period, now you mentioned Ponce de Leon. <laughs> all right. Now, of course, maybe just quickly we can rattle off a few: Hernando Cortez. Um, you know, you can you can go through a few others. Um, Pizarro. Uh, with whom would you want to sail? Were you in that age? Oh, that's a that's a tough question because obviously I just want to have my own ship. Thanks, uh, you know the good the good ship cultural cultural encounter and not you know <laughs> let me rob you of your gold. But I think I think to see Tenochtitlan, mm. like to see that as a functioning city to kind of get there and go. Oh, wait a minute, you know mm. I think that would have been amazing. So I, mm. I think I might have to go Team Cortez there. Um, team Team Cortez. I, although it might have been kind of problematic when you watch him destroy the boats and. So stuff. I was just I mean, about to say, know. how would. <laughs> Like you that know, you think okay, question. this is all going, yeah, this is all going really bad. Your heart rate might increase a little bit with the knowledge that <laughs> there was no return. There was no going back. Okay, so uh, you're you're a person that's not averse Sorry. to commitment. Not averse to commitment. You like a you like a challenge. You like to see it through, the Cortez way. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> no, but I I think you know to see to to encounter the Mexican like you know to have that initial nobody's you know nobody from Europe has met. You know, that we know of has met these people and here's this amazing because also I, I really love cities so to mm -hmm. and having gone to mexico city mm -hmm. and just thinking about what's underneath it and yeah. and and going to the bit of Xochimil where there's like um canals and stuff i oh it would just been amazing so that you know that would have been yeah i think that would have been my my voyage <laughs> i might have to uh, i might have to say i'd sign up for magellan's uh, circum mm. uh, circumnavigation of the world uh, of course you know, he failed that, to see. That's it. a long haul. It's that's a long, a long haul, haul, but again, commitment. I'm, I'm there for it. <laughs> or I might have been marooned on the somewhere in the Falkland, or you know, in uh, Argentina. Yeah, well, well, <laughs> but I don't but think I, I want to be. I don't think I want to be marooned on the on the Falkland <laughs> Islands. It might be a little cold, like you and the penguins. You know, a little chilly right before the Straits. I think that would be that, <laughs> that would be an interesting way to go with Magellan. Uh, leaving me behind. <laughs> um, so, so okay, that's a, that's an interesting hypothetical. So you're Team Cortez, I'm Team Magellan. Um, uh, let's now turn very briefly because we mentioned slavery. You know, we have that that long and inglorious history of that. Very briefly, maybe you can tell me and tell our listeners about the Valladolid um, um, uh, debate. Um, just you know, it's encapsulated you know the the contending ideas that were presented there and maybe what lessons were were could be gleaned from that well it's really interesting because the key figure in this and i'm not going to correct your pronunciation because 
because this is one of the hardest words for English speakers to say, Valladolid, and I still stumble over it. Um, so, so I'm not going to be like, oh, the debates of Valladolid. Yeah, yeah. I have, but, I have but, to, but, I have to confess, I wasn't sure if I should use the Spanish pronunciation. I was thinking of Valla, Valla, you know. Ah, um, right. But I didn't want to seem pretentious. So I, I, no, I no, bungled no, no. it, and I bungled it in the normal English no, no, manner. No. <laughs> <laughs> My Spanish friends will, will chastise me, I'm sure. It, Taken me years to pronounce it properly. Like it's one of those ones. I even in Spanish, I constantly yeah. yeah. It's like so. That is a very interesting question, and it's a really interesting debate. Um, and it has quite profound consequences um, because basically you've got um, you've got Padre de las Casas who is trying to be the you know he gets called the defender of the Indians and he starts speaking out against slavery. Um, because, you know, the initial slavery was of indigenous people. Um, I mean, there was obviously some enslavement going on with Africans, but the scale doesn't shift until a bit later. And he kind of has to face off over, basically the debate is over um, uh, whether or not Native Americans have souls and can be converted uh, to Christianity in, in, in a way that is, um, I guess, Believable? I'm not quite, yeah. And and so, you know, the question is, do, the, do these people have souls? I'm kind of really, really boiling it down here. And the answer basically becomes, well, yes, they are, they are convertible. But guess who doesn't have souls? Guess who the, guess who loses in this debate, even though they're not mentioned at all? It's Africans. Right. So De Las Casas famously then goes on to say, well, okay, we got to stop enslaving indigenous people, but we, we, we can keep saving Africans. And he goes back on that, like 20 or 30 years later, he then goes back and goes, oh God, I got, got all this wrong really sorry okay by that point like you know um so so yeah so part of this the early modern ideas about who is insavable and who isn't um part of it comes with the rise of islam so if you were not a christian you were enslavable and that worked both ways if you were not a muslim you were also enslavable um the idea of just war where these people captured in a just war and and then um, obviously with Valladolid, it became a question of do these people have souls? Um, you know, should they be enslavable? Uh, and and the answer, um, you know, is it, well. In some ways, I think technically it was a draw. Hmm. Uh, I think in the sense that I feel, and I, I have to go back and check my notes because it because it wasn't really a, it wasn't like a courtroom debate. It was like, you know, cases were argued over. Two or three years, I think, and um, um, uh, and so you know the outcome was a bit of a draw, but the crown basically said, okay, we got to can we just stop enslaving people? And they also got rid of the encomienda, which was this um, not not as a result of those debates, but the encomienda kind of faded over uh, its use, kind of ended over time, which was this system that started in the Caribbean where nobles were granted um, land and they had. Do, they did deals with caciques, uh, who were Indian chiefs, uh, Native American chiefs, to get the people to provide labor. And in exchange, they were protected from their enemies and they were converted to Christianity. So it was qu quite a dodgy setup, as you might imagine. Um, and when some of the caciques, you know, worked out what was going on, uh, obviously it caused a lot of problems. Um, but again, you know, we're back to, you know, when we talk about empire, what is it that people are trying to do? They're trying to harness natural resources and they're trying to harness labor. And the encomienda was an early way of harnessing labor. And it also goes back to, it, it has a connection to um, kind of the taking of land and the giving of land to nobles uh, that comes out of the reconquest. So so that model is very kind of early modern um, and, and it fits 
it fits in a very different way, you know, but this, this it's all this a continuum when we talk about slavery. But when we talk about slavery in the US, people think, um, you know, people of African descent and plantations in Mississippi. Well, this is this is this is where this starts. You know, this is where these these the intellectual justifications start to take root, you know, at this period. So or even actually arguably even earlier. So I'd like to pluck one word that you used, uh, mm. muddled. And and I think that's <laughs> I think that's an apt word to describe the that situation, particularly in the early uh, the the late 15th century, muddled. I think it was morally muddled. Uh, of course, Las Casas, he's arguing from this moral theological position as opposed to the more kind of brute uh, I you know, not not just brute, but I think it was also in some ways some ways of a vestige of Aristotelian thought, not to get too philosophical, mm. but mm. You know, there's long ingrained in the Western mind from Aristotle and even before Aristotle, this idea of natural masters and natural slaves. So, you know, as a good Aristotelian, <laughs> you're going to look at these populations and think, okay, well, based on my readings of the, you know, the Stagorite, the great Greek master and and those who came before him, it's totally justifiable that these people are going to be under our dominion. Now it's whether we treat them brutally or kindly, of course, that's even if you can treat them kindly as an enslaved person is, is probably impossible. But it's fascinating to me to, to see these two sides of the debate. And this is the incipient uh, conversation, right? We think like in America, we, we tend to be a little bit parochial in our view of history. So we think, okay, it was, it was, Slavery, you know, introduced to the country in 1619, and then it was, uh, you know, the Constitution, which ingrained it for, you know, eight years after its ratification. Then it was the Emancipation, Pro uh, Emancipation Proclamation in 18, you know, 63. But there's such a long history, and, and the, the the thought that this was really maybe not the first time that there was an actual debate on this. Of course, slavery is is coeval with humanity, uh, sadly, uh, but. This was like the, the first real kind of rigorous intellectual um, approach to it, at least so far as I know, but I'm, I'm sure there were others, maybe less well-documented, but this was a real rigorous attempt. And Las Casas, you're, you're cheering for him, you're rooting for him. He's, he's like halfway there, but then he, you know, he says, no, we shouldn't enslave the indigenous people, but I have an answer. We'll, <laughs> take, we'll take Africans. That's, that's, you know, it's like, no. He was so close, I think, to being the moral um, hero of that era and for all eras thereafter. Um, and I think we should acknowledge that he did contribute greatly to the debate and to the process of, of, of liberty for all. Um, but, but still, we, we lament the fact that he couldn't take his, his own thinking, his own reasoning, uh, just and his own Christianity just a little bit further. <laughs> But it's really interesting because I'm, I'm working on a new book about abolition and one of and this obviously starting all the way at the beginning and one of the things that's really really that kind of jumped out at me which in some ways is kind of obvious because you, you couldn't have the scale of slavery you know from africa that that we had in the west without it but the fact that even at this point people like de las casas uh, are willfully ignoring in the jesuits and like quite quite a are willfully ignoring the black link, the African link to Christianity. They're they're willfully ignoring Ethiopian Christianity at this point. Um, and and I think that's that's because because in sort of the 14th century, 
um, you know, there was this, the, the myth of Prester John and the Ethiopian Christianity and all, and all of that kind of just disappears. And it's like, oh, wait, you know, and then, and then in the 16th century, you have um, Congo kings converting to Catholicism. And again, it's kind of like, you know, oh, but we, we can't, we can enslave Africans because they can't be Christian. And it's like, well, wait a minute, actually, there's quite a lot of Christian kingdoms here. And so, so that becomes, um, really i don't know this is kind of i'm just sort of in the early stages of kind of looking at all of this but it, it becomes really really interesting that that the catholic church basically kind of turns turns and turns a turns away from it you know um and and that's the thing like all of this is happening and it's really interesting but it's happening with the catholics and you know we have the protestant reformation so the dutch and the english don't care you know and that and that becomes the second bit of this right you know that becomes and the and the kind of um the classical thinking and the ideas about natural slavery and stuff come back um you know with 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 a vengeance uh during the antebellum period for sure mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. they absolutely get revisited at that point um you know in 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 those kind of final days in some ways of of this kind of regime um but uh yeah but certainly in the early period it's it's kind of fascinating what what's going on with within catholicism and and i think too with spain um the you know the footprints of the of the reconquest of you know spain are all over this you know uh believers and not believers and who's convertible and why why catholicism has such an enormous part in in this whereas you know British colonialization uh, and the French Huguenots, to, to the extent, I mean, French colonizers were kind of a mix of two, a mix of, of Catholic and Protestant. But, you know, the Dutch, I mean, they they were obviously, they brought religion in certain ways, but they didn't do it like the Spaniards. And mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, um, to do with kind of where Protestantism was at that at that point. Yeah. Um, I mean, missionary stuff comes a lot later and does happen, but not, you know, the, the, the debates are very different. <laughs> yeah, it, it can't be said of the Spaniards that they don't have a certain flair to them. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just ingrained in the culture. No, uh, I, 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 I jest, but, but no, yeah. And you're, you're right. And I'm, I'm very much looking forward to, uh, to your forthcoming book on abolition. I'm sure that would be, that would be fascinating as well. Um, yeah, and you're absolutely right. It, you know, you have thinkers like John C. Calhoun in, in, mm -hmm. in the South, um, and contrary uh, to the to the Declaration of Independence. You know, he's he's going to argue not really from a Catholic position, but from a natural right, I guess, position or a natural law position that no, not all men are created equal. And of course, you know, that's a difficult conversation and one that's not easily um, soluble as well. Of course, you look at, well, is there quality under the law? I one would hope so. Is there a quality, though, in you know, physical attributes and mental endowments and cognitive abilities? So it's this it becomes this, again, what you said, muddled situation. Uh, which I think again aptly enca encapsulates so much of this uh, moral debate and progression. So, uh, with that, I want—I just want to move to to America. I want to move stateside um, into that into that period, the abolitionary period, and and um, um, in the antebellum period. Uh, can you speak a little bit about the idea of American expansionism? Uh, now, uh, I think often of, of Bishop Berkeley, uh, better known as a philosopher, uh, but he also spent some time as a uh, maybe an investor in the in the colonies. That might be a good, a better word uh, for what he was um, expected to do. Uh, but um, he, and after whom the the uh, the city in California is named, 
But he had this idea and this famous quote that that westward, the course or the march of empire takes its way. Right? This idea of a, uh, and I'm sure you'll you'll get into the the, the idea of manifest destiny. Um, what are your thoughts about this? This inevitability of history—it's sort of a like this inexorable march, uh, the uh, something of a Marxian or Hegelian idea—and I don't mean to seem pedantic by throwing those terms around. Just to say that there's this idea that there's a certain ultimate summit toward which history is forever marching, uh, whether it be a utopian summit. I guess we won't know because we might not reach it, but. There's an idea that yes, there there is a sort of sort of a predetermined, whether divinely or or otherwise dialectically, march towards something, or on the other hand, that nature is sort of a like a cyclical tragedy. Just things are happening, uh, and and happening again and again, and probably not ever reaching or or or, or striving toward anything discernible. So I know I, I'm putting in a lot there, but I guess the, root, the, the, the core of the question is, what are your thoughts about this idea of you know, um, a manifest destiny, American expansionism, or the inevitability of um, a certain process taking place? Oh, that's a, that's a, it's a good question. Um, I think the question, I think the, the key word there is maybe inevitability, because I feel like that's a really 19th, well, Maybe so, not so 19th century after all, but yeah, I, I think about those kind of big models of history um, and how they're very kind of products of enlightenment um, and how they're completely problematic. <laughs> I tend to be, so my, my view is, well, it's okay. So it's quite interesting. I've been doing a lot of reading um, around the kind of neurobiology of storytelling um, because as a writer, you obviously want to know how to capture your audience. And I think we're becoming sort of increasingly sophisticated in understanding the human need for narrative. And I think that's where kind of marches to history fit. They're really handy narratives. Um, even, even, you know, world systems theories, Marxism, like it's really handy to just have a really nice big narrative that we can kind of shove everything in. It's like, look, look, there's a theory. And, you know, there's a reason Marxism was popular for a long time. A lot fit under it. A lot fit under that umbrella, you know. But at the end of the day, um, I think humans are pretty much chaotic and imperfect. I, I take your point about maybe there's more, it's more like it's cyclical. Um, because we do seem to repeat things, <laughs> we, do, we do seem to do things over and over, you know, like the fact that we still have wars, I, you know, it's kind of absolutely outrageous in some ways, but, um, but again, it's that kind of ability of people to keep doing the stupid, same stupid thing over and over. So I tend to think that in the 19th century, the sentiments um, and the way people express themselves the way you know language was used um that you could kind of say grandiose things like it's our destiny to spread from coast to coast now arguably people people could say that it's our destiny to go get all the oil out of iraq i mean you know has that language <laughs> has that language really changed but certainly it was more palatable and it was also more something you could rally behind i mean you know um when when Polk was running for president in 1844, I think his motto was what, 55, 50 or bust, which was um, an allusion to the Oregon territory where again, he wanted to settle the boundary with the British, which he did. Um, and you know, he was Manifest Destiny's man. 
as well. And um, uh, but of course, it was a journalist who coined the phrase. <laughs> um, but no, in terms of like these big overarching, you know, are we kind of doomed to our own fate? Well, that's kind of Calvinistic, really. It's like, oh, okay, well, actually, we're just going to march along this, but it's actually inevitable. So I do think there's a bit of a strain of kind of a Protestant Calvinist idea that there's a, a system that's bigger than humans that is guiding us somehow, be it, you know, the Geist, be it economic forces. I tend to go, oh, humans are nuts and unpredictable and... Let's just see what happens when we put all these stories together. But I do think we want stories. And this is why you can't just throw lists of facts at people and expect them to remember historical moments. Mm. They need a story. They need a beginning, a drama, and an end. And the thing is, if you rock up and say, you know, this is our destiny and we're going to make it happen, people are like, oh, great. Okay, that hits all my, you know, dopamine receptors or what, you know, mm. whatever, whatever it is. So I think, um, the idea of this kind of big history, these marches towards progress or the future or something are very 19th century, but they certainly have echoes today. And I, I think people, I mean, definitely Marxism is still very popular, you know, without question. Um, people see that as, you know, the, uh, the, the model that explains our current malaise, you know, for instance. But I'm just kind of like, there's a lot in it that's great, but it's just a theory by a guy and you can also find all kinds of exceptions to it. So, you know, um, yeah. I, I feel like um, it's kind of still a, a quite 19th century way of viewing the world. But, you know, in the 19th century, it was hugely um, formative and, and powerful. I mean, I think, I think, you know, the United States believed its own message and, and Polk was going to get California one way or another. So. And he did. And we have it now. <laughs> <laughs> for better or worse. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, no, I think, again, you encapsulated those ideas perfectly. Um, there is something, and I this is something with which I I grapple. And I'm I'm reading right now uh, Ronald uh, uh, Reynold uh, Niebuhr, um, a, a Protestant thinker, a very very profound thinker um, from the from the uh, uh, 20th century, uh, and and he explores these ideas of the Marxian way of approaching history and the more almost Christian way of exploring history. And I, and it's interesting, you use the words or the words sort of this innate imperfection in humankind. Now, I don't mean to, to make a religious point here, that's far from it, but, but Niebuhr often, often does. And he speaks to mm -hmm. the, you know, the original sinfulness of humankind, um, the original pride, the self glorification, um, which often leads to self-destruction, uh, as as we see so often in in stories and in in, in biblical works as well, uh, and I think that contrasts well and vividly with the Marxian view, where you have this mm. sort of par perfect harmonious system, the Hegelian view as well, mm. um, you know, in which all is explained and right. and nothing is left to that innate imperfection, right? And and we see that I think. You know, the, the Marxist strain reveals itself in different ways now, I think. Um, that's not something into which we need to, we need to get right now. Uh, we certainly could. Uh, but I think from as an historical model, uh, me looking as an outsider, as a layman, it seems less in vogue. Now, I'm not saying that Berkeley was a proto-Marxist. <laughs> uh, he wasn't. But, but um, I think the dialectical approach to, toward history 
kind of borrowed without uh, without uh, <laughs> acknowledging it um, a lot from from religious thought, the religious thought mm -hmm. that inspired or influenced a man like Berkeley to say what he did about about the West and its ex its necessary expansion. Right, and I, I mean, I think I, again, I think that's why some of these things seem very of their time because of, because of the way you know religion was still much more part of public discourse as well um, in the nineteenth century, and people were at least more ostensibly religious, whether or not they they felt it, you know. But it was it was very much still part of a public life, and so you know, it is like looking for kind of a secular sort of religion. And I, I mean, I think it's more helpful, and I think what historians try to do now is discuss change over time. But again, like, how do we present that? in ways that um, grip people in the story. That being said, history still does love theory. People mm. love to come up with like new concepts and new theoretical frameworks and all that kind of stuff. And in some ways that's important because we need to have languages to explain things. But on the other hand, it doesn't really, I mean, I don't know how helpful, how helpful is it? I mean, you know, case by case basis really. But yeah, the, but you know, I say that, I think the books that still sell well are ones that offer super, super overarching, here's, you know, how we understand all of humanity ever kind of books still tend to do well. So I think there is a need for it, whether or not it's good history is debatable. It's almost, right? it's almost trans historical. It's almost, you're looking mm. at, you're looking at something different. And, and this probably relates to your studies of the neurobiology of, of the human mind as it approaches stories. Uh, I think there's, uh, if you were to define define our species, you could do so in many ways. I mean, we are rational creatures, of course, but um, I think we are story seeking creatures, maybe most mm -hmm. fundamentally. So, you know, what's the grand narrative by which every story? Right. Is so, you know, that's why I think the religious impulse is is so mm -hmm. ingrained, and that re religious impulse has to manifest itself. It has to come through in some way, and it's it's searching mm -hmm. for story. It's searching for meaning and what feels to be. Um, uh, doubtless a meaningful world. So you're looking for meaning in history and and yeah, you'll take an explanation wherever you can find it. Well, and this is it. And I think this is one of the reasons it's very been very easy in, the, in recent times to tip into sort of conspiracy theory mm. and baseless things because religion is being sidelined, at least in the Christian West. So, you know, like you say, what are people kind of latching onto? Well, they're not reading Hegel. <laughs> You know, and they're not reading Marx really um, in quite the same ways. So, what you know, where are they finding the stories? And they're finding a lot of stories in conspiracy theories and misinformation, and you know, and and some of that's politicized, and some of it, you know. But it's also we're at the interface with a new technology. So instead of just books or instead of just newspapers, yeah. we have these different technologies that again appeal to our brains in certain ways that um, allow people to make certain stories. And of course, the algorithms help that storytelling. So you know, and this is all this is all a challenge um, for people who want to watch how things change over time it's like you know the internet age is a huge challenge for historians it's enough to make me kind of want to stop at around 2000 and just like okay no, you know it's, it's it's a hugely challenging thing well please don't stop uh we, we're, <laughs> we're in more need of, of your efforts now than ever but i just want to uh, just quickly pin down on that and you said something um that i think is is very important toward fostering a more sympathetic uh, world uh, and and that is that we are all all looking for narratives, for answers, for stories. Now you might find yourself in the thickets of a conspiracy, but that's that's just an outgrowth of that inborn need. So you might be misinformed, disinformed, misguided, or ill-educated, whatever the case may be. But still, that same 
fire burns in you that burns in me. Now, now having read a book like yours, you know, I'm hopefully better informed. I think I am, uh, despite my mispronunciation of Valladolid. <laughs> 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 that famous Spanish city, uh, whose whose pronunciation I won't try again on this episode. <laughs> uh, but but maybe we extend to these other people a greater sympathy, right? A, a greater compassion, knowing that everyone is searching for an answer. Um, hopefully, they stumble their way, muddle their way to to the right answer, um, and and. Popular works like yours, I think, can be that guide. I mean, I think I think that's it. I think that's where the responsibility falls on 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 historians, both in the academy and outside of it, is to to communicate. And and this is the problem: if things are too theoretical or too abstract, or it doesn't it doesn't necessarily connect with people. Mm. Um, and so, you know, if you and, and again, we all have different versions of the truth. I mean, we have different versions of the truth, but the facts are the facts, right? And it's trying to work that out because. We can take the same set of facts and a hundred years ago would have been interpreted in a very different way. And this is something I think people don't really understand about the writing, the professional writing of history, is that interpretations change. The f and, and then the facts can change if we find new things, if we find, oh, actually, you know, in this battle, there were a hundred thousand people and not 10,000 people because we found a new archival source or whatever. But, um, but you know, the, the, it, it, it is a, it's not a static profession. It's not a static form of writing. And I think, that like you say, people are searching for something and they get really angry when you tell them that the history they think they know isn't the history that is. Mm -hmm. And we're really at a moment right now of that where, where you know, a lot of histories are being, because, because the people who are allowed to write history has become broader, right? Um, you know, it used to be a very white elite male profession and now it's much more diversified. And with that becomes different interpretations. With that comes, you know, people spending longer and longer in archives or, you know, I mean, also because it's been more as a field, more professionalized, but yeah, when you tell people, eh, actually, this wasn't how you think it was. Sometimes you don't get, you know, sometimes you get people going, Oh, wow, that's so interesting. And other people going, no, that can't be, you know? Yeah. So um, historian, historians have to kind of, you know, stand by their work. Um, yeah. But, but it, but it is a fluid field. And sometimes I feel like maybe we don't make that point enough that, you know, we're constantly rethinking our own work. We're constantly looking for, you know, more verification. Um, you know, so I, I think sometimes people just think we sit down and just sort of write fancy things out of air. <laughs> no, no, I don't think that's the general. At least I hope not. But but either way, I think it's it's enlightening to hear about that process a little bit more about how the historian, a historian like yourself, an accomplished one, approaches that difficult task. And it is a heavy burden to, to bear, especially now. Um, so it must be um, it must be dispiriting at times to see so much bad history either written, written or or conveyed, you know, through whatever media or medium it, it might be. Um, so yeah, you have, <laughs> you and your colleagues in that field have a grand task uh, before you. Um, I Now I mentioned, uh, Niebuhr and I, I, you don't need to be familiar with him or his work in order to to remark upon um, one of his statements. I wanted to read it to you. I read it just recently in his work, um, and I just want to get your comments. It's on the Spanish-American War, so we mentioned that just briefly. So I think we'll address that. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. I can give you then a quick uh, few questions, just uh, rapid-fire questions, and then we'll bring this to a conclusion. Okay? You've been okay. very gracious with your time, so. Uh, let me just read to you this quote. It's his quote, um, a passage from one of his works, and then I just want to get your remarks on it. So 
uh, Reinhold Niebuhr said, the Spanish-American War offers some of the most striking illustrations of the hypocrisy of governments, as well as of the self-deception of intellectuals. The hypocrisy was probably excessive because a youthful and politically immature nation tried to harmonize the anti-imperialistic innocence of its childhood with the imperial impulses of its awkward youth. It was just beginning to feel and to test its strength and was both proud and ashamed of what it felt. So what do you think about that? Niebuhr speaks about the, uh, often about the, the delusion of the innocence of America's youth. Um, hmm. But he's talking about 1898. So he's talking about after a civil war. That's, that's kind of taking the innocence of youth a bit. <laughs> I would have thought, I would have thought the civil war would be a good aging process. <laughs> um, so I think he's slightly romanticizing it. Hmm. Um, but I see what I see. I think the, the, the idea of hypocrisy is very interesting. Um, and, and there's a really deep-seated, I mean, you know, from the Monroe Doctrine on, onward, it is a bit, you know, hypocritical. Um, but yeah, the kind of, I, I, I jotted down, proud and ashamed. And I, I think actually that dogs the U.S. to this day, really, in many ways. Um, uh, and, and, and one of the things that I think we're watching in real time is an inability to discuss and articulate shame in the US in terms of historical moments. And it doesn't just have to be about slavery, that, ha that happens to be the topic right now, but we could talk about lots of other things that, that have happened um, you know, under the US flag. Um, it's interesting that he focuses on the, the Spanish-American War uh, in this regard. But yeah, I mean, it was kind of seen as, as an imperialistic um, intervention, but obviously like we were talking about earlier, um, the anti-imperialists, and, and also it connects to this much, much longer history of the US really wanting Cuba. Um, uh, and they got so close. Uh, and I didn't. That, that uh, was actually, uh, I, I withheld that question. That was actually, uh, <laughs> I wanted to, to bring up the, the Cuban counterfactual. I always think that's fascinating. Like, <laughs> what if McKinley succeeded, or, you know, what if the Spanish crown agreed to, to the, you know, rather reasonable asking price for Cuba? I mean, it's just one of those great counterfactuals, you know, what if, what if America, or, or maybe if the, you know, the Teller Amendment you know, what if that passed, and what if we eventually right. annexed the this the uh, that that fertile island nation? It's very well, fast. Well, well, slightly more worrying counterfactual is like during the annexationist era, which was in the eighteen fifties, um, when there were a couple of uh, attempts to to annex Cuba then, because the idea was that there because it already had slavery, it could be part of the slavery, but so imagine if it had been annexed in the 1850s before the Civil mm. War. So even, you know, so just it's a, it's a somewhat darker counterfactual, but, you know, and, and, and there were so many moments when it was so close with Cuba. Um, but yeah, and, and yeah, the Spanish-American War too is, you know, countries come out of Civil War, um, it, it's, you know, repositioning itself on the global stage. Like it, it is a really important, and of course this is the end of the Spanish Empire as well. Mm. Um, so, you know, but yeah, the proud and ashamed, that's really, you know, that's really um, kind of an in interesting uh, way of, of thinking about this war. But I, yeah, I think he's quite romantic, yeah, romantic and I, about, I, the, about I, the adolescent right, right. US. Like, <laughs> and again, okay. he's, he was a, uh, he became a more of a political commentator. Uh, he was fundamentally a, 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 a theologian, um, but he has, he had a lot of interesting insights about the history uh, of America generally. Um, I don't know why exactly he he honed in on the Spanish-American War, but I, I like the idea. And he he uh, 
refers to it often in his writings. He, I like the idea of this, what, what he calls an anti-imperialistic innocence. So this, this delusion mm -hmm. of innocence, of purity from the very start, uh, when beginning with Washington, you know, we, we hoped for entangled in alliances with none, right? The idea was this kind of mm. splendid isolationism. America was it its own. It was it was beyond and in some ways above the inveterate squabblings of Europe and the rest of the you know civilized world. It was going its own way, right? And it was going to do its own thing. Um, but then of course, those forces of history, they, 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 they present themselves, call them what you will, and America is either thrust into this new way of life or enters it willingly. And I think that's, it's that uneasiness, that anxiety about which Niebuhr is talking. So I know he talks about the Spanish-American War. He obviously could have gone earlier in time and, and had a much better case to make. Um, yeah. I'd, I'd have to read back and, and maybe, maybe in the context there's a reason why he spoke to that specifically. Um, but I think that that in that balance between the, the pride uh, mm. of the ideals and the shame of of you know part of what have come out of the fruits of those those ideals or falling short of them um, is really interesting. And I just I, you know I just wanted to to see what you thought about that. Yeah, no, I I I, I definitely agree. Um, it is it is an interesting quote because I I think that's always been part of the problem. This has always been the thing that the United States has always had to reckon with, because like you say, he's looking back to this innocent time, but of course, that's that's from the white settler perspective. If you're indigenous, you maybe wouldn't think of it. Like, you know, like he's ignoring an entire part of US history mm. to even have that concept. So, um, you know, who's the imperialist? Who's the settler? Who's the, what's the innocent time? What's the, you know, so it's probably, like you say, I think it's, it's, the, it's the pride and the shame mixed. Um, uh, that makes that makes it quite you know an arresting, but but you know po potent and, and like I say contemporary. This is definitely something that's in many people's minds, even if it's not articulated or at the forefront. You know, it's it's there. So. Yeah, yeah, and he speaks to the uh, above all to the to the. The, the sinfulness. I mean, he was a he was a Protestant, so he talks about that you know, that sinfulness that's inherent to us all. So why don't we? end uh, with a few rapid fire questions. Okay. Is that agreeable to you? That's fine. Excellent. That's fine, Excellent. as long as it's not like trivia questions. <laughs> no, no, as as these, are, right or these are easy, <laughs> right down the middle. They'll be nice, uh, a nice way to end what's been a stimulating and delightful conversation. I mean, in every single way. Uh, so question number one. And may, maybe you answered it already. What is the most impactful book that you have read this year? Oh. It doesn't need to be a book oh. from this year. It doesn't need to be a book from this year, published this year. It could be, it could be Toynbee, it could be anyone. So most oh, of, well, it's any book you that you read this, any book that this you read year, this year. Well, is it, does it count if it's a book I'm reading? Because I'm already like loving this book so much. Um, and it's a book called, sorry, I had to pull it up just so I get the title right. Um, let me just go to the title page, actually, because um, so it's a new book. It's 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 just out. It's Cambridge University Press, and it's a historian called Jose Linga Nafefe, and it's called Lorenzo da Silva Mendoza and the Black Atlantic Abolitionist Movement in the 17th Century, and it basically does what it says on the tin. Um, he makes a really interesting argument by looking at this um, African noble who ended up um, at least kidnapped. I'm not convinced he was enslaved. I don't think he was enslaved and so but he ended up in Brazil uh, and then he was Angolan uh, and he ended up in Brazil and then he ends up basically 
speaking of court cases, um, having a court case against the Vatican uh, to end slavery and to end the slave trade in the, this is in the 17th century, the 1690s. So this book is really, really interesting and um, a very in, in, informative for me because uh, the way that we talk about abolition tends to be as this like 19th century movement. Um, and this guy is coming in going, you know, and white lead and all this sort of stuff. And this guy's coming in going, nope, nope, we got to rethink how we think about all of this. And and his scholarship in this is tremendous. Um, uh, he said, he, and in his introduction, he was saying he spent 15 years writing it. So I've got that, I've got that like halfway through a new book thrill, you know, like I'm reading this yeah. going, oh, wow, this is like a field changer book. Um, so it's very specific. I mean, it's very much about a particular person in time, um, but it's, uh, and it's speaking to obviously the research I'm doing for my next book, but it's the kind of book that changes the way that people think about an entire field. And it's only just out. So yeah, sorry, it's not something that's slightly more classic, but that, you asked me what I was reading this year and that's, this is the one that's kind of blown me away so far. So. <laughs> no, I think that's, that's a, a wonderful uh, offering. Uh, and, and I look forward to reading that as well. And yeah, of course the, the Vatican is, is uh, famously amenable to, to all new ideas. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> right, right, just like the Spanish Inquisition, right? <laughs> so I'm sure they were more than than willing upon first uh, their first uh, encountering him and his ideas to to change their their ways. Uh, so next, uh, aside from history, what is the subject area in which you are most interested? Um, what is the subject area I'm most interested in? Um, hmm. I think I'm interested in what could broadly be termed as creative nonfiction. So what that means is I'm kind of interested in lots of cultural things, art, music, whatever, and I'm particularly interested in books that lead me to certain things, right? So, um, uh, but yeah, kind of generally speaking, um, I love visual art. Um, and I'm obviously very spoiled because I live in London, so I get to go do cool stuff all the time. Um, and uh, but I love good writing about, you know, interesting people. Um, so I read. I tend to read quite widely around things like I'm really interested in the surrealists, for instance. But I'm never, you know, I'm never going to write a book about it. Um, you know, so so yeah, I think probably visual arts, our architecture, design. Those are all kind of interests for me um, that are very much away from. From what I what I work on, but I'm also a big fan because I was a journalist. And my husband's a journalist of journalists who just write interesting books about things, mm. um, you know, across across a wide range of stuff. Um, so I always just kind of, and maybe that, yeah, just because of my background, I just have a, a bit of time. Like, oh, this journalist who was, you know, reporter somewhere writes this book, or somebody who's a journalist writes a book about how to be a more efficient, whatever. I don't know. Like, there's just you know such a wide range. Um, that was the fun of, of being a journalist was being around so many things going on um so yeah right and and never having a, a lack of of uh fertile soil right from which to draw right. ideas no i agree i think some journalists today are doing extraordinary work whether independently or you know with big publishing houses uh, i think this is a very ripe time for them uh, mm. uh the period you'd study if not this if not, uh, you know the the sort of the post immediate, you know, post Columbian period. Not that that's so, a specific period, but I, I guess what I'm asking is, through the course of history, like if you could study ancient Greece, if you could study, uh, you know, the Roman Republic toward its fall, where would you go? Oh, that's interesting. I think I think that's a good question. I think that it would be really nice, and it's totally linguistically 
impossible. But I mean, it'd be nice to have Arabic and be able to work on like the enormous like Muslim world. You know, um, I simply don't have the language. Um, you know, and, and even even in dealing with the Atlantic world and European empires, I mean, outside of English, like reading the paleography of, of early Spanish and, and then all the regional languages like the you know, Valencian and early Portuguese and stuff is really, really hard. Like it's much easier to have it transcribed um, uh, and printed, you know, and that always makes me feel like, oh, I should be able to read this. But that's like a whole separate discipline. You know, it's like I can read most of the archival stuff from like 1700 to the present day. But yeah, but it's all European languages. Like it would be pretty great to have like good scholarly Arabic. I think you could do a lot with that. Because that, that's also Mediterranean history, isn't it? And it's also Spanish history. And it's also, so that was, I think that, and, 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 and across like from the beginning to like the end of the you know, Ottoman Empire, I think that would just be amazing, yeah. Yeah, and if, if we in the West are historically impoverished or ignorant in any way, uh, we certainly are in regards to, to Arabic history, Islamic history. Um, I include myself among those. Uh, and, and you're right, I mean, just a very dynamic and interesting field um, whose, whose reper I guess the, the ignorance of whose repercussions maybe we're feeling in, in many ways, mm. you know, in, in, geopolitical, in geopolitical ways. Um, so that's, that's, I wasn't expecting that, but I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, so a more, just a quick learned question. Uh, your favorite between the two, Herodotus or Thucydides? Herodotus. I agree. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I said that was like kind of process father of, of my father of history, there. not the father, father of lies. history, not the yep. father. So we're team. So we're team Herodotus. We join Herodotus. arm in arm with team Herodotus. <laughs> All right, and for the very final question, uh, imagine yourself to be an historian in the year two thousand one hundred and twenty-two, a century mm -hmm. removed from this very day, uh, whose task it is to describe the state of the West in a single sentence. What Ooh. would be that? single sentence what would be that single sentence um wow i don't know that, that makes me want to go slightly random and poetic like you know you're allowed to here on this this is a very <laughs> this, this is a very po buns, this is a very poetic friendly <laughs> channel <laughs> you know um yeah let's see uh yeah the forest burned, the river rose, the queen was interred in the ground, you know. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Because I think I think if you were looking back, oh God, I kind of, I hope we're still, I hope humanity is still going in a hundred years. But I think the the, the big thing and, and one of the huge trends, I suspect, um, going forward in history, the practice of writing history will be um, environmental history. Mm. So a hundred years from now, we'll be looking at these moments of, you know, radical, um, you know, or saying, oh, it was, it was the last year there was no hurricane in August or something. You know, I think we're going to look back and go, oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess I guess the monarchy is on my mind at the moment. <laughs> no, no, I, I and understandably so. And I think I think your first um, your first offering might be might be best. The the forest burned, <laughs> the river the river ran dry, and the queen was interred. Was that it? No, but I had the river flowed over because I'm sitting outside. I'm this <laughs> our current flat, you can see the Thames. So the Thames is high, but you're right. Actually, the river ran dry slightly better because they're running oh. dry in most places. So so I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah, well, you know, it's a, a collaborative effort. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll count it as such. Uh, okay, yeah. so so I'll, so I'm not saying I'm going to get that tattooed on my chest just yet. 
but I, I think it's <laughs> maybe going to be the title of this of this episode. Um, so, Carrie, I, I think we'll conclude with that. I, you've been more than gracious with your time. I'm sure there are a thousand ideas running through your head. I love the prospect of you writing a book uh, about abolition. I, I can't wait to to get my hands on that one as well. And again, I will, uh, you know, provide a link to all of your, what, be it social information or Twitter links, whatever it may be. Where can people find you if they're if they're seeking uh, to connect? So with they you? can they can find me they can find me on our website, which is carriegibson.co.uk. Um, I am on Twitter at Carrie E Gibson. I don't tweet very much, but again, you can contact me occasionally because because I'm in writing mode as well. I'm not doing very much social media, but I'm always happy to have people join me and add me, and I get more active when. I'm not on deadline, basically. <laughs> um, I'm on Facebook. I am on Instagram at Carrie C. Gibson 76. All of that's on my website. So the website's mm -hmm. a person for the call and including links to my books and reviews and all of it. And I'll put a link to this on there when it goes up and, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, and, and to which I'll provide links as well. So everyone will have uh, ready access to them. Uh, and again, I can't uh, encourage you enough to go out and get um, Empire's Crossroads and El Norte, both fantastic books for both learned and layman alike. Uh, Carrie, again, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. And I hope to to speak to you in 2122 yeah. <laughs> when, <laughs> when we, we become uh, you know automatons and we are able to preserve our brains and have these wonderful conversations in perpetuity. Yeah. Um, no, but thank you. Thank you for having me on. I really enjoyed our chat today. So I appreciate it. Of course, of course. All right. And with that, we conclude our conversation with Carrie Gibson. Thank you all for joining us.